You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er fam, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Julia Mallory. Julia is a writer, storyteller, and founder of Black Mermaids, a creative literary arts company producing children's literature, healing texts and workshops, and apparel. Growing up in central Pennsylvania, Julia always had an interest in writing, but she didn't consider herself a poet until her late teens. She would eventually become active on the poetry scene and later set her sights on publishing her own work. In 2016, Julia released her first collection of poetry titled Black Mermaids. While this idea of Black Mermaids was sparked by a fun moment on vacation, her writing goes much deeper than that. The titular work reimagines our history. What if during the transatlantic slave trade, kidnapped Africans aboard slave ships who attempted to flee or were thrown overboard in turn became Black Mermaids upon entering the water? Through her work, Julia links this reimagining of life after death to modern day. Despite all of the things that were meant to destroy us, we still persevere. We rise from destruction and we recreate ourselves. Julia received an unexpected amount of support for her work. And shortly thereafter, she got to work on her children's book, Karima and the Black Mermaids. But just before the book was scheduled to be released in late spring of 2017, Julia's oldest son, Julian, was shot and killed while trying to break up a dispute. As is to be expected, Julia's whole world came to a screeching halt. Yet, she somehow found the strength to release her book later that summer. Julia has gone on to release additional works, including Survivor's Guilt, which crystallizes her grief experience over a two-year period. Today, the Black Mermaids brand continues to evolve and includes a four-part workshop series that explores themes like intentional self-care and transformative grief. So without further ado, here's her story. Julia, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So this is different in that we're doing this episode. Uh, we've been doing them virtually for a while due to covid but doing it in the evening, during the week, I think there's a storm brewing outside. So if you start to hear like thunder, that's because I don't know what's happening uh, out here in my town. But it's great to finally speak to you. And I'm really excited to to get into your story. Well, I'm honored to be here. And thank you for uh, connecting with me. Awesome. So let's jump into it. Who is Julia Mallory? Oh, my goodness. So many, <laughs> so many layers. Um I'm a mom. Um, I'm a grandparent. I am a grandparent. Yes. Okay. I usually don't uh, interrupt people during this part, but that <laughs> caught me off guard. But go ahead. Yes. Um, I am a creative. I am a storyteller. I am an entrepreneur. Um, I, I don't know. I'm a children's book author. I'm a poet. Um, I'm a writer. I am a, a daughter, a significant other, a sister a friend. Um, Those are many things. So yeah. we're going to unpack some of that. I don't know why writer jumped out at me, uh-huh. but let's just start there. So, you know, when people talk about, um, you know, I, I want to be, I, I'm, I'm a writer. There are some people who are like, I knew from the time I was a kid, you know, I wrote short stories. It was my thing. I wrote poetry, et cetera, et cetera. And there are other people who feel like, oh, I fell into writing and I realized that was a gifting of mine. Uh, later in life. What was the story for you? So, you know, I think I always felt like I was a writer. I was mm-hmm. a voracious reader as a child. And I think um, writing to me just came um, 
it came very natural. So I always felt like I was a writer. I don't necessarily, if I'm honest, I can't say that I, uh, in my earlier life, felt like I didn't necessarily have author aspirations, but writing was something that I always enjoyed doing, especially um, poetry is my first creative uh, love. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing and how sort of writing and reading weaved into that. Um, So I'm the oldest um, child and I think my upbringing, like I grew up in central Pennsylvania. Um, I grew up in uh, public housing, um, other projects, as we like to say. Um, I always had a book in my hands and it, <laughs> it used to tickle me. Like I would always have a book and people in my hood would like, would just like to hear me read like of all ages. They would just be like, okay, read something from that book. They used to just super be impressed, um, be super impressed by my reading. My father, I believe, taught me how to read when I was around three. Um, and it's just something that I've, you know, I've always kind of connected. I'm just a naturally curious person. And that's how I fed my curiosity um, was through reading. Mm-hmm. So I think my upbringing, um, I grew up in a city. I grew up in a majority black city. Um I um, am an extrovert. I had friends. I played a lot outside, um, but I also definitely enjoy my alone time. Um, so I think my upbringing is, is traditional in some ways. Um, I'm a first, so I live in a city called Harrisburg. I'm a first generation Harrisburgian. Neither one of my parents were from here, but they met here. Um, and so I think I you know, kind of like, like established kind of roots here, so to speak, but also feel very connected to other places where my parents are from. Mm -hmm. So people, you know, I know I was a kid who loved reading as well, so much so that like, you know, my mom, I always say that, you know, for Christmas, we always got a lot of things that we needed more Mm -hmm. so than just, you know, frivolous stuff. But my mom had this tradition when I was little, of letting us open, you know, letting me open a a gift the night before. So Uh Christmas Eve. And I would look around the tree for the thing that was shaped like a book, right? (laughs) So to open that. Um, But one of the things that I loved about reading was that it opened my eyes and my world uh, to stuff that was outside of me, environments or experiences that were outside of my Mm -hmm. immediate surroundings. And I feel like it exposed me to possibilities. Did you have that similar experience of using literature as a way to curate your imagination about what was possible for you outside of, say, public housing? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, so it's funny, as a child, like, I don't recall get, like getting gifted a lot of books necessarily, mm-hmm. but my dad always took me to the library. And so, um, so I definitely... I think just imagining different worlds, period, like not necessarily just like, okay, you know, outside of the hood, so to speak, but just different people and just different spaces um, and just kind of connecting with the characters and kind of that internal struggle that like typically most books are made of. Right. There's a problem. There's a plot. And then we try to figure out how the character is solving that plot. Um, But I think definitely connecting. And I also so we talk about books, but another thing that I really used to enjoy were um, magazines. Mm. So magazines, I would say, definitely gave me like what is possible. So I used to love reading Essence magazine. Um, it used to be a highlight of mine. And I think that is when folks really were telling you your, their backstory and you kind of. So I appreciate growing up in a generation where like a lot of people's success was put into context. So now, like with social media, we just kind of see like, 
the end result, but not necessarily all the struggle and not all the discussion around the progress. So for me, I grew up knowing like things don't necessarily happen overnight. Um, and this is how people go through the process. So um, magazines, oh my gosh, I love magazines so much. And, um, you know, it's different because in a digital age, they're just not at the same um Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I just got super nostalgic just thinking about like my magazine obsession. And um, I think even for me, I used to enjoy the experience of going to buy magazines. So you could absolutely have a subscription, but I just enjoyed that early experience of going every month to the bookstore and like buying magazines. Um, so reading definitely did expose me to people that weren't necessarily like me. And I think even in terms of this kind of myth, this myth that like black folks are not a monolith. Right. And I mean that like not in a way to under the white gaze, but like just literally even with us. So I used to use reading to just even just see the layers and the complexities of black people that I might necessarily have met um, and just kind of seeing the difference between. So I grew up in the Northeast um, and, you know, I have my mother is Southern born. So even just connecting with people from all over the, you know, hire Black folks in the Midwest, hire Black folks on the West Coast, like just a difference and just kind of, you know, seeing all those complexities of us and those stories. So reading definitely gave me just an opportunity just to connect with other worlds that weren't necessarily like mine, even just like hoods, like, okay, yeah, these folks are in the projects, but their projects look different. They sound different. They're built different. Like even just that, just seeing how other folks were living. Yeah. And it's it's interesting you mentioned that we're not a monolith because we use that phrase to describe this show all the time. Uh-huh. Right. And there are certain ties that bind us and certain cultural things that mm-hmm. are, are common to many of us. But even on this show, how people have responded to their condition, which may be the same as other guests, mm-hmm. their response is different. Right. So mm-hmm. conditions may be the same, but res- response is different. And I think sometimes some of the things that like drives me crazy about representation on television and movies because sometimes we're boiled down to what people to the least common denominator where people think okay this is what black people are and this is how they respond to a certain set of circumstances and that's just not always the case um and one of the things that we're committed to as a show is saying okay we may have had several people on the show who grew up in public housing but how that had that how they've been socialized and how that has affected them as a person will be different on a case-by-case basis. Absolutely. And I think that's part of it too. I think, um, so, and that's why I made a mention of like, not necessarily saying we're not a monolith, like to respond to the white gaze. Because I think sometimes black folks use that to be like, I'm not like all black people. Like, you know, and that's not what I mean. I mean, literally, like even just with us, just like learning more about us so that I can love and appreciate the unique ways in which blackness manifests Mm -hmm. um, for us. So, um, yeah, I think so. And that's and I think that's the problem as a storyteller. What we get into the issue is of kind of the myth of a single story. And so because we're giving so few opportunities to to have what you just described as representation, it becomes these very stale, um, like not just allowing for the nuance, not allowing for like just the beauty of us to really come through. And we end up like sometimes I think in conflict with one another because we're like, oh, you know, that don't represent me. And it's like, okay, but is it okay if it represents somebody? Um, Just because it doesn't speak to your type of Blackness, is it okay if it represents 
someone else's blackness. And so we should be looking at like, how do we, how are we more expansive as opposed to constrictive just because we can't identify with that character. Like, I think that's like a true testament. Like there's just no way you're going to be able to identify with every black character. Like it's exactly. a clear expectation. So, um, we should be fighting for more ways to expand that um, as opposed to constricting it just because we don't like that is that's oh I can't identify with that black person you know like exactly and what I find I think what has been eye-opening for me in doing the show is that what resonates right and th- there are people who come on the show who ex- whose experiences and whose worldview is so different than mine. Uh-huh. Um, and I feel like I've had such a diverse upbringing and experience in my life and the different circles that I move in that I can relate to a lot of different people. But I've had people come on and we're just like our outlook on things are just so different. And those are some of the largest, the 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 biggest episodes we've had, the most popular, because they're resonating with a segment of, segment of the population that I might not even be, you know, connected to. Right. Um, but I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that with new digital mediums and, and platforms and, you know, so much focus on Black creatives, that we will continue to have a diversified representation of our experiences through art, you know, through film, television, books, all mm-hmm. of it, um, that that's going to come. But I'm with you in that you definitely took me back to like, going to the store just to buy Essence or Ebony or mm-hmm. even Jet, because I read Jet too. No, I read all of them. Oh my God, I used to love visiting like my great aunt because she had Oprah magazine. She um, had Ebony, she had Jet, she had Essence. And so, oh my goodness, I used to love. And then also I was a huge music and a hip hop hit. So I absolutely love the source and I love Vibe and... um XXL came like a little later to the game. But I just remember like, again, even with music, like, oh my goodness, like connecting. And that is the thing. I'm not a purist when it comes to music because I love experimentation. I love things to evolve at the rate of the folks that are enjoying the thing. But that is something that I do miss about music. I miss the regionalism in music. I miss being able to like hear a track and be like, oh, they're from here, right? Like I miss that part of of music where now it's more likely that folks might sound a lot more similar than they sound dissimilar. Um, and I just, I just miss that part of it. Like, oh, wow. Like, okay, I'm a, I'm a listen to this music from Houston because it's going to give me a certain perspective. I'm going to listen to this music from Queens or Brooklyn. It's going to give me a different perspective or listen to this music from Jersey. It just is going to sound a little bit different. And don't get me wrong. There are definitely folks who are still doing their work at their, you know, at their respective level. So I don't want to make it sound like they're not people who are still putting that type of work out. But I feel like it used to be a little bit more main, accessible, be a mainstream. Now we kind of got to do a little bit more digging. I think exactly. that stuff. Yeah. I've been watching um, the Chronicles series on BET. So they had uh, No Limit and Master uh-huh. They had Rough Riders. And it just like took, between that and all the versus battles, uh-huh. it took me back when, to a time when like people in music felt more comfortable to blaze a trail and confident that they could still have commercial success, right? Because there was more money to go around. And obviously with digital, the industry has changed, but I miss that. Like I miss when like people would come out with a completely new sound um, that was regional. And like, you knew like they're about to blow up. Like there was space for that as opposed to a little bit more reticence with the industry because they feel like there's not enough to go around in terms of money or opportunity. Mm-hmm. And like, let's just stick to what's hot um, in the moment. And like you said, there's a lot more digging 
that has to happen. And also what I, 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 we have completely digressed, but anyway, also what I miss um, about music back in the day was reading the liner notes. So like, yes, pick up a CD. It was like a ritual for me. You know, music came out on Tuesday. I would go get the CDs. I would come home. I would open, I open in the car Uh and I did have the CD changer in the car. And I would read the liner notes. I wanted to know like who they thanked, what they wrote about, who were the producers, who was everybody involved. I guess you can still get that information online, but like I've never looked at the liner notes. I've never looked it up. I think also one of the things that um that reading liner notes also taught me was that like folks, like people were paying homage through sampling. And there was a lot of music that was sampled back then that um that you basically got to know because of the liner note. Right. And so, um, but no, I absolutely miss looking at the liner notes. I think also just the curious, the curiosity part of me, because I used to always like, that was part of, I felt like I was like this educator that I would just be like, you know, I, I could draw the parallels. Like I could see who's hot. Like I know this producer has worked on these projects. Um, like I just kind of had this certain type of connectivity to the music in that way. So I absolutely miss, oh my goodness, the liner notes used to be so rich. Um, and then even some of them included the song lyrics, right? So this is before you could look up song lyrics online. You're like, cause I, I remember sometimes I would transcribe songs <laughs> and now, um, you know, now it's like, oh, you can literally just Google it. And some of them are absolutely wrong, but, um, I'm like, that's not really, that's not the word. Um, But, you know, but now you got literally, you have sites like Genius, right? That are like not only, and again, not all of that is accurate because these are fans take on it and not all of them (laughs) um, necessarily have been approved by the artists or endorsed by the artists. But like now, you know, I, I don't know. And some of that I used to just enjoy. Like I like kind of the, I assign my own meaning to it. Right. I sign my own meaning to it. And maybe it might be six months before there's an interview with the artist and then the artist put the work in context. Like, I appreciate that now everything is so fast. Everything is so instant. Um, the pressure on artists, creatives that constantly keep producing um, when folks haven't even engaged in depth with the work that they've already created. So um, I think that is something that I do find I like the world is more flat in a sense. We can go directly to who we want to connect with, right? We can go directly to who we want to connect with our work. But I think just sometimes the expectation that people are supposed to just constantly keep producing um, and then people just were like, oh, okay, you don't got nothing new then I'm going to just go to this person. I'm going to just go to this person and just kind of literally are consuming creatives um, by way of their content. And um, so that's not something that I enjoy about the modern era. I'm definitely like old school where I'm like, give me a chance to miss you. Like, go away and then come back. Let me get hyped about the fact that you're back. Um, and we just live in a society now where it's just a constant feed of information and sensory overload, which I, I also am having a hard time uh, adjusting to. Um, but getting back to your your personal story and talking a bit about your upbringing, Mm -hmm. what was your vision for your own adult life and career, like in your teen years, thinking about college or otherwise? 
So I always knew I wanted to go to college. Um, I grew up also watching a different world. So I definitely wanted to go to HBCU, but um, I was a um, teenage parent. And so um, I ended up going to college like during like what would be considered my traditional college age years, but I wasn't a traditional student. So um, I knew I always wanted to go to college. I thought I was going to be either an attorney or a psychiatrist. And um I think I was in a position professionally, I was engaging with some folks and there were two instances where I basically let people talk me out of uh, both of those dreams. And I don't know if I necessarily regret it because I feel like I'm in possibly the lane that I'm supposed to be in now. Um, But that's initially where I saw myself going. I saw myself, um, also saw myself like doing public service work, possibly being a politician. Um, Not because I just want to be a politician, but just because like I grew up, like I was always low key woke and I (laughs) grew up just wanting to make a difference and wanting to amplify the voices of folks like me from backgrounds like mine. And so those are things that I was, um, you know, that was kind of what my early ideas around schooling and professional trajectory were. So what did you end up majoring in? So I ended up majoring and I was, I did start out majoring in psychology. Um, and then I, around the time when the, the pivot happened, I ended up majoring in uh, business administration is what my undergrad degree is. In, and then my graduate degree is in urban studies, community development. Got it. So how did those career, those uh, educational choices kind of play out in your career choices? So I think um, business admin degrees can be great because they definitely can offer you a lot of information around being a generalist. Um, And so I, but I also picked a lot of like, um, what would we call them? I picked a lot of progressive, social oriented electives. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't in a traditional program, so I had access to kind of some not traditional program choices. And so that also gave me like I wanted to be in business, so to speak, I guess. But I wanted to do things from an ethical perspective um, in a way that like wasn't just about like the race to the bottom. Um, and so how did it play out in my career choices? I think it just gave me um it gave me a way to make, like I've worked in like nonprofits. Um, I've worked for corporations, but I think I learned a lot in terms of like organization. I also uh, majored in marketing. So I think just that gave me kind of just lingo, you know, just knowing the words that people are using, knowing, um, knowing what's on trend um, in the business world and just really just how to, I guess, talk to those folks in a way that they could understand. Um, so I think, I am grateful for those educational choices, to be honest, because but one of the things I did learn that even through schooling, like I had to like teach myself so much. There was so much that like, you can literally go through a four, six, 12 year, 12 years of schooling and literally like not learn a lot about us, not learn a lot about our struggles, not learn a lot about our foundation. So I think my educational choices, though, gave me an opportunity to like, I think, a strong sense of organization and um like operations and just kind of like knowing that type of lingo, I think has have been very helpful. Mm-hmm. And then you ended up in PR. Is that right? Yeah. So I, um, so for the last few years, I've been working for, um, I've been working for a black woman owned marketing, uh, PR, uh, and, um, advertising agency. So that, like I had done some of that already in some of the positions I have been in, but to solely, you know, focus on that for um, the last few years. So I learned a lot in, in that arena. 
So you're working in PR, but then at some point you got this idea to tell a story. Is that right? So it's not that linear. So um, I think honestly what happened, I was actually working for, um, I was working for our area school district. I ran the parent engagement office and um, I, so at some point I was like, look, I need to get a book out in the world. A lot of my peers are publishing. I know that publishing is something that's very accessible to me. So I was like, okay, around 2014, I need to put this book out. Um, Book didn't come out. 2015, I was like, look, I need to put this book out. (laughs) The book did not come out. And so 2016, I got laid off from the school district. And I was like, I was burned out. So I really didn't do anything initially. Um, And then a month later, I was like, look, to myself, you're probably never going to get this gift of time. So how can you best make use of it? And so I kind of dusted off the work and the outline and really just start pulling everything together. So the book happened first. The book happened first. And then, um, so my first book was published in November, 2016. I started working for the firm um, like March, 2017. Mm -hmm. So this was your first book. Was this the book of poetry? Yes, Black Yep, the, the collection of poetry. Okay, so talk a little bit about the, the, some of the themes in that book. So in that book, because Black Mermaids itself, um, I was on vacation in Puerto Rico in about 2014. And this idea came to me that what if enslaved Africans aboard slave ships, the ones that jumped overboard or were thrown overboard when they hit the water, they in turn became mermaids. Um, and so when that concept came to me, um, I thought I was going to write like a travel essay ar- around my experience, even just being on the island and just kind of seeing it from a different perspective of just like displaced Africans, like all over the world. Right. And so um, I don't know. At some point, it's like the story wanted to be told and the story wanted to kind of detail with that reimagining um, was. So in the book, there are themes around, you know, cultural pride, around resilience, um, around, you know, toxic masculinity, um, Mm -hmm. around domestic violence, around um, Black childhood, around Black motherhood. Um, Those are some of the prevalent um, mass incarceration. Those are some of the prevalent themes that are in Black mermaids. So you release this this book of poetry, Mm -hmm. thinking about those themes, also, you know, going through a career transition, um, but then that's not the last stop for you in terms of writing, right? And, and similar like themes. So at some point there was a children's book that, that came to you as well as an idea also, right? So you started working on this children's book also. Is that correct? Literally a month after the book came out, because what mm-hmm. happened was when the book came out into the world, um, so because I wasn't talking about mermaids in the traditional sense of the way we think about them in popular culture, I think I wasn't just, I have to be hundred percent honest. I was not really anticipated all this black mermaid pride. I just mm. wasn't. <laughs> so when the book came out and people were coming up to me like, Oh my God, you know, and I'm people of all ages, like, you know, you know, more senior black women and little black girls. And they're coming up to me like, oh, I'm a black mermaid. And, you know, and, and parents like, you know, there's not enough of black mermaids in the world. And um, do you think my child will like your book? And so <laughs> I was telling people, was like, it's not a vulgar book, but it's like absolutely for like older teens and adults. Like, mm-hmm. you know, because I know as a young person, like I was five and I could read like all the things. And so I was like, oh, I know your eight year old could probably read this book, but I don't think it's the book for them. <laughs> so like very 
early on, I was like, damn, I have to do something else. Like people were like hungry for this. I really felt a sense of cultural responsibility to put something else out in the world that spoke to these people. And so I sat down um, literally a month. I was actually, what happened was I was telling my friend about this and I was like, girl, listen, this is what people were saying. I got to get back to work. Right. I was like, I got to do something else. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do? So I was like, oh, maybe I'll do. And this is like not an exact, uh, you know, thing I was going to do. But I was like, maybe I have to come up with something that's like a, you know, a chicken noodle, you know, soup um, for the for the black mermaid soul or something, some type of like workbook around that. But I was definitely going to center like teens in it because I thought that would be a happy medium. I was telling my friend and she was like, girl, I don't know why you just don't write a children's book. And I was like, what? Like, like the world stopped for a second. I was like, why did I never think of that? I absolutely love children's literature. You know, um, I, as a, as a parent, that was one of the best things about becoming a parent. I could literally read my kids, my childhood favorites. So I sat down and it was like, I was getting this divine download. I started writing this book about a little black girl that gets saved by a group of black mermaids and her dream. And it, the words just flowed. And so I showed my daughter the manuscript when it was done. And she was like, mom, like, this is really good. It's like a real writer wrote it. And I was like, hey. <laughs> like a real writer as if you're not a real yeah, writer. I was like, oh, okay. But I, you know, from her, I was like, I know like that's an extreme compliment. Thank you. And so, um, you know, I hit up the woman that partnered with me on the, um, that did the, the the cover for me in my poetry book. And I was like, look, girl, like I got this children's book idea. I can't think of anybody else that I want to work with on it. Could you illustrate it? And um, she was like, eh, I've never done illustration before. And I was like, but you're literally an artist. Like you literally paint. How hard could it be? Right. Like, this is me. Like it, it has to be just as you got this. Like, this is fine. We're going to do this. And she was like, you know, I'm honored that you want to work with me in this way. And so we, you know, we got to work very quickly on the project. And the goal was to have that book come out um, in like between May and June, because we had this vision of like, we would go and like do like, you know, uh, author appearances and illustrated appearances for like the summer camp kids. So the idea was that we wanted to be able to make sure that this was on like the local community summer reading list. Um, And so that was our goal. And we were definitely moving towards that direction. And then um, the death of my oldest son, Julian, happened and um, so the incident happened in May and then his end of life was in June. So that kind of, you know, made things shift a bit. So I'll stop there though, just the, cause I know we'll get to that part, the grief part later, but. So but let's what, talk about that. Yeah. Let's talk about, so you're preparing for this book and then we'll come back to when the book actually came out and uh-huh. then now all the things that you're doing related yeah. to this Black Mermaids uh, brand. But I do want to talk about that time in your life because mm-hmm. you're planning for this book. You got this illustrator, you have yeah. this plan. Um, and your oldest son. So how old was he at the time? Julian was 17. 17. Yeah. So what happened? So, um, you mean the incident surrounding his death? Yes. Um, so from my understanding, which is also public record at this point, he, he was with some friends and the friends had gotten into some type of fight with their aunt. They were at the aunt, they went to the aunt's house, um, I guess with the idea to possibly talk. Some type of melee ensued and um, basically she shot my kid. Um, And so um, 
yeah, that's basically the the very short. So for you as a parent, and I don't know how deep into this you you want to want to get. I always give deference to the guests with mm-hmm. this kind of thing, especially something that's traumatic. But as a parent, what was that like? Like, what was the call that you you got? Um, how did you? How was that news conveyed to you? So actually, it was my daughter who got the call. Mm-hmm. Um, we were. It was right after Memorial Day. We were all in the house. My daughter was in the house. My youngest son, my youngest son, and I. We were just out. Um, we were at the mall. Like we literally, um, we were out sneaker shopping and we were, um, getting ready to sit down and eat our Chipotle and, you know, just chill out. And then my daughter, you know, is in the kitchen and she's like, mom, um, Julian's been, Julian's been shot is what she says. And so I'm like, what? You know, and so then there's like a series of phone calls. We're trying to figure out what the hell is going on. It was just a lot. And so I don't know if I want to get into all those details right now. Um, but yeah, it was just, I mean, I guess this is as traumatic as you can imagine um, it to be. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that your son passed in June, mm-hmm. right? So I, 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 I gathered that there was a period of time where there are questions about whether he was going to survive or, you know, you're hoping that, that he's going to survive, obviously. Yeah, we were, um, we were camped out in the hospital for four days mm-hmm. for the miracle. Praying for this miracle. Yeah. And, you know, I don't I don't have children, but of course I have plenty of, I know plenty of people who do, and I know people who've lost a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk about, first of all, we all know that children are supposed to bury their parents and mm-hmm. not you know, the other way around. So, you know, for you having that experience of also, you know, your oldest son. So you mentioned that you were a teen mom. So it's in some in some aspects, you both grew up together. Right. And you evolved together. If you're a young mom, what was that like for you trying to figure out how to not only get I won't say get past because you don't get past anything like that, but having to show up for your two other children as well and find some form of normalcy in your life after losing your oldest son. So I think for me in the early, be- like the beginning, I didn't, I gave myself permission not to think about any of that, mm-hmm. right? I gave myself permission enough to believe that, you know, I have enough of family and enough of support that folks can step in and step up and support mm-hmm. us. And so I think the biggest thing during that deep grief and initial shock was to not tr- try to have this rush to normalcy, to try and allow myself to feel what I needed to feel. Um, and so I think that was tremendously helpful. Just like not trying to act like it was anything other than devastating. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what it was like for me. It was just like, oh, I'm not going to pretend I'm not going to act like I have the capacity when I don't. And that mm-hmm. has been very helpful. So was there because I know eventually your book actually came out. Mm-hmm. So how long was it between the loss of your son uh, and the time that you actually ended up releasing the book? So initially, you know, when everything happened with Julian, so um, Black Mermaids, just really quick, Black Mermaids was never supposed to be like a business or brand or any of that. Literally put out a book of poetry, then like wrote this children's book. And so we, um, uh, my initial feeling was like, I am not like, whatever, like, I don't need to do any of this type of stuff. Like, I don't even really know how to move forward was kind of what my initial thought was. So I was perfectly fine with scrapping the entire thing. Like, 
it seemed so inconsequential. Like, right. I really, it didn't matter. But they really, honestly, I don't think I gave it any real thought. I think, um, so in April, I was invited to be a guest speaker at an event. And so I went there and that was like my first time really like, I think really just representing myself, just really just talking a little bit about my story and just kind of talking about the things that I have been through professionally for like the last, you know, five years or so. And so that was like really my first time like being in that type of space. And so I I had a pop-up event right after that. I, I had come up with one t-shirt design and one book design. And so at that point I was like, mm, maybe Black Mermaids could be something, but I had no real vision for it. And so um, I... So I was basically disengaging and disconnecting from all potential possibilities around what my work and my creativity would look like. But it hit me like it didn't take very long for me to realize that, oh, my God, like it's probably going to be my creativity that's going to save my life. It's probably going to be the opportunity to um, to speak, to write, to connect with folks in a meaningful way um, that are absolutely going to save my life. And then also one of the things is that. My first book had a also. I mean, one of the things also in that book is grief. I, I, I completely forgot that one or left that out. So a lot of the words that I needed in that moment are words that I already wrote that came back to also mm. me. So I think seeing it from that perspective in a real practical way, I was like, damn, there's a possibility that creativity is a thing that I really need. And so my son also was a very um. Julian was very much a fighter, like very much like a robot person. And so I think there was part of me, too, that didn't want to give up just to like honor his legacy as well. So I would say we basically got back to work on it like in July. Mm. Yeah, we got back to work on it on July. And when I say we, because my work, my work was already done. Right. Like my work was already <laughs> my stuff was already done. So Kia was able to get back to work on it um, and just had, you know, drafts and things that she was able to present me um, during this time. It was just an interesting dynamic because we're also friends. I had a bunch of um, I had a bunch of trauma around. I wasn't able to drive. So what happened was we were trying to find when Julian was shot, we were trying to find what hospital he was in. I was driving and like we called multiple places. I didn't know where my kid was at. And so later I had a bunch of anxiety around driving. So I wasn't able to drive for a couple months um, because of that. And so like Takia came to like, you know, my son was in summer, my youngest son was in summer camp and walking distance from the house. So like I walked to get him and then like she picked me up, like, you know, and we reconnected and, you know, she had the final illustrations. And so we just moved forward with the project. Um, and the book came out like at the end of August. So actually, I guess like this is probably, yeah, this is like the, this is like the three year anniversary um, week of Karima coming out into the world. Wow. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, trauma responses. Mm-hmm. Because I think, I wish we gave more credence to that as a culture, right? And and we extended more grace to ourselves in terms of like, you know, I think sometimes because of the way we've been conditioned, because of what we've been through, we feel this pressure to like find normalcy. Like, you know, do what you're supposed to do. You got to get back to work. You got to keep moving. God will put more on you that you can bear. You know, we have all these sayings that we use. Um, but these things that happen, you know, these really traumatic experiences can have effects on you psychologically, emotionally, et cetera. And they can be triggers. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's important that we highlight uh, 
why it's critical, right? If something is a trauma response, to be gentle with yourself as opposed to pushing this idea that like you got to get back to driving or you got to, you know, you got to face it with head on. And and for to have good people around you who are willing to say, you know what, do what you need to do. I'm going to drive, right? I'm, I'm going to help you here. To me, that's also a part of the healing process and often can help to heal actually in a better way and more efficiently than just trying to push past it and act like it's not happening. So pushing past is not healing. And I think that is like such a common misconception. So what people always ask me like, oh, well, Julie, how did you? And I was like, I just did. Like I gave myself that permission. And I think that's part of it is that we are hoping that sometimes somebody is going to be able to come along and be so compassionate that they create a safe space for us to do these things. And I'm like, first, you got to create the safe space for yourself. Like you have to be okay with that. Right. And so grief definitely taught me about asking for help. I could have absolutely acted like I was fine. I could have absolutely been out here driving, having to pull over on the side of the road, doing all types of weird things just so I could look like I was fine, just so I could look like I was normal. And so um, I had to be okay with asking people for help. I had to be okay calling my cousin and saying, hey, can you take me to Target? I had to be okay with people running me around. Like I had to be okay with waiting on folk. Like, I had to be okay with that. And I think sometimes, especially when you might be a person that's used to doing all these things by yourself and just being a highly independent or interdependent person. Um, and also if you're the go-to, right, you're more comfortable people coming to you as opposed to you going to people for support. Um, but I absolutely try to tell people in my work and my grief work that I do in the community, like productivity can't heal our pain. Like you can't, like pushing through ain't healing. Like it just isn't. Right. Like we push through all the stuff, all the baggage, but the healing is the sorting. The healing is the discarding. Um, And if we just push in and not doing any of that type of work, like that's not healing. That's not healing. Absolutely. And also, too, one of the things that we've said on this show, which I'm a, a huge a message that I'm a huge proponent of, is that grief is also not linear. Like you no. can be OK this month. And that next month, not. And that's okay also. Healing is not linear. And I think sometimes the way we talk about it in popular culture is just kind of like, it comes across as of like, oh, if you just do these things or I knew I was healed when, and I don't know, like you could be healed, but still be triggered. You could be healed and still feel, it's like if we have a broken bone, right? The bone technically on the x-ray is healed, but you know, when that rain comes, you know, your knees start bothering you. Um... You know, you know, you can't hold it like the same way for too long. It's technically healed on the x-ray, right? But there's still a residual effect of having going through that thing that still remains. Um, and I know that's hard for people to, you know, to deal with. I was, I did a brief workshop last night and one of the attendees was like, Julia, like, I don't know. This doesn't sound fun to me because you're basically telling me like grief is forever. Like it's not a thing. I can just put a check in the box and move on basically. And so... Um, I get it, but I just also don't think it's avoidable. Like, I don't think we can avoid our grief and be free. Like, I just don't think that. And we can, um, we can pretend we can, you know, slap a good job on it. We can slap a degree on it. We can slap a new car on it. We can do all those things. But until we really get to the heart of the matter of what is ailing us, um, nothing will fulfill, will fulfill that pain or satisfy it. So, um, yeah. And one of the things that I've seen happen is when people have an inability to acknowledge that void and that grief and the healing process that's ongoing, and then they enter romantic relationships, 
sometimes there's an expectation that the other party is going to fill it for you, right? And offer a salve in a way that just they don't have the capacity to do. Yeah. And sometimes we are asking people to kind of do things that are not necessarily, um, yeah, like it's an unrealistic expectation to put on humans to satisfy our souls in ways that we have not. And um, whether that's friendships, right, whether that's romantic relationships, you know, we kind of get into these spaces where we think, again, a lot of it just looks like avoidance. And I get it. So I try not to bring shame into the discussion because I totally understand why we do the things we do, especially as Black folks. Like, I totally understand the cultural condition and at the one time possibly cultural necessity, right, for us to kind of look like things were fine, for us to kind of keep it pushing, um, especially like premature Black death is so pervasive in our in our society throughout the ages. So what that means is that there are so many deaths to mourn, right? And so death, grief is not just death about death-related loss, right? But it's like death-related loss. Like, I mean, it's, it's loss related to like the loss of our cultural understanding of where we come from. It's a loss of opportunities that we know we deserve, but this society does not make it available and accessible for us, right? It is, we have grief around disruption to our way of life, Um we have grief around so much. So I totally understand, um, especially for our enslaved ancestors, that when folks are just dropping dead or the life expectancy of an enslaved person, you know, was so low. Um, I could imagine, right? Like you literally, you know, you're grieving your people being sold off. You're grieving your own children being sold off. You're grieving somebody that you might have called a partner, a wife, a husband, a significant other, you know, here today, literally going, going tomorrow. So I understand that like grief is such a pervasive part of us. Like we have kind of adapted, you know, adapted to it. And, and uh, in a book called Sisters of the Yam by Bell Hooks, she talks about how being used to the pain, right? It's like, no, um, like that's not the same thing as knowing what to do with it or how to work with your grief so that it doesn't um, overwhelm you. And so- I think what I'm trying to do in my work these days is try to normalize those conversations. Um, trying to also let Black folks know it's okay for us to talk about our feelings, that our full humanity is restored, is accessible to us when we allow ourselves to show up in our full emotional complexity. And we have to stop letting white supremacy um, deny that for us. Like we have to stop letting capitalism tell us how we can feel. And we have to stop like feeding into this idea that productivity can heal our pain because it can't and it won't. And the pushing past again, I mean, what we pushing, right? We pushing, but it's like literally recurring the grief in our bones. So it's kind of like where we really push, like where we, where we going, right? Is we taking us everywhere we go. Um, but I think I try to demonstrate because people think I'm a strong individual and I try to tell them like a lot of that y'all is because <laughs> I'm, I'm like freeing a lot of the stuff that has been weighing me down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also when I honor what my body is telling me and, and um, it just allows me to do my work in a very different way. So um, yeah, I just, I'm trying to let folks know like it's okay to have feelings. It's okay to express your feelings. Um, you know, we like to say like, you know, oh, you know, get about your feelings and, you know, get into a bag. And I be trying to tell people like, listen, maybe if we spent more time in a bag, like maybe we know where to put this stuff at. 
right? Right. Like, so secure your piece so you can really secure the bag and whatever that bag might be. So not in like just a pro-capitalist way, like the bag being money, right? But the bag being whatever the magical thing that you're trying to put out into the world. So in my workshops, like I work with a lot of people who are like really incredible, dope, right? Creative people in a variety of ways. Their work is being disrupted because of a lot of the emotional and generational and psychological trauma that they're carrying. And so it's not that they don't think they like they can do dope things, but it's all this other stuff that is making them feel like they're not dope enough to do it, that they're not deserving enough to be supported. And so that's the work that I'm trying to unpack. Like, I'm like, you can go to somebody else to help you coach you through your book. I don't want to do that type of work. Y'all can go, you know, you can go to someone that can give you practical advice on that. But let's unpack. Right. Why are you sabotaging your project before it even came out the gate? Let's unpack why you out here begging people for support. Let's unpack those things. And so that's the work that I've been trying to do. Um, Yeah, that's what I've been up to. Yeah. And, you know, it's a couple of things that you mentioned that I've, I've heard come up on this show. Like, I can't tell you how many interviews we've done where people come on and they bear their soul in a way that I think is commendable and amazing. And I know that the episode is going to resonate. And then I talk to them after. And when they start to replay it in their minds, they're like, that was terrible. And I'm like, why was it, you know, why do you think it was terrible? And they're like, I was too vulnerable. Right, right, right. And I'm like, no, no, like that, that is what, as a people, we need these safe spaces to express our vulnerability, which doesn't feel natural to us a lot of the times but is important, right? To, to find our humanity and put that on display. And also a common theme that I see just talking to my friends and, and people and they say, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just so lazy. I can't stick to my to-do list. I can't get this project done. And, and they're often conflating depression or unresolved trauma or a lack of self-confidence or a plethora of other issues with laziness. And the inability to produce is really an outgrowth of all these other things that are not being addressed. It's not because you're just lazy, right? And I wish we would have, and I I love the work that you're doing, which I want to talk about more, but I wish we were having nuanced conversations, more nuanced conversations about the underlying issues where the lack of productivity is really a result of that. And also honest conversations about giving ourselves space to unplug. Like I'm, I do a lot. Right. But this hustle culture of like team, no sleep and finish strong. Every day I'm hustling. Like, and the thing, the lazy part too is like, are you lazy or you just freaking exhausted? Right. Right. Cause that's another thing that like black folk. And that's why I can't celebrate. Like, don't get me wrong. People that know me know that like, I am very intentional about the work that I do. And I definitely be trying to create dope things, but like, at what expense? Right. I can't celebrate hustle and grind culture because at the end of the day, if we're 100% honest, a lot of us, the hustle was born. Like I grew up in the hood. So folks wasn't hustling just because they wanted to hustle. Like they were hustling because they were shut out of opportunities. They were hustling because they had a lack of financial resources. So to me, if I celebrate hustle culture, then I'm basically celebrating being in an abusive relationship with capitalism. And mm. I can't do that. I can't do that. So I think also <laughs> like, it's interesting because you said you use the word lazy, right? That your people are saying that they're lazy. And it's just interesting how we have so many readily available terms to pathologize Black folks and our inability to do things under this soul-crushing um, system. And it's just, it's, it's mind-blowing to me. So I try to 
normalize these again, these conversations and just say like, look, is it like, like you, like, are you lazy or are you just exhausted? Are you right. trying to do too much? Are you chasing one of the other things that I think hustle and grind culture also brings us is a perpetual pursuit of what's next. And so what happens a lot of times is we out here chasing, we want everything moving because we're also hoping that at some point, all of that stuff is going to satisfy our unfulfilled soul. And so because we can't be honest about possibly our truest desires or the true work that we want to do, we just keep saying, oh, I'm going to get this other degree. I'm going to get this other degree. I'm going to get this other, you know, certificate or I'm going to get this other business or I'm going to start this other thing. I'm going to start this other thing. And it's just like, have you really loved and nurtured on the things that you already have? Like, have you loved on your work? And to me, if you haven't loved on your work, I wonder, like, was it some work? Was it really the work that was for you or you were just doing it because we need the appearance that we on top of our game? Like we we bowed it like we, you know, I'm doing all these things and it's just like, that's awesome. But if it don't do anything for you, right, if it don't satisfy you, if it's just you chasing what everybody else is chasing. Um, so. Yeah, I forget what my point was about where I was going with that. But definitely the, the perpetual pursuit of what's next is also really um, harming us in a lot of ways. Which is honestly what this whole show was born uh, out of. Like this idea of the 26th, we've got we to gotta be on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what the next chapter of our lives holds, feeling uh, uh in a place of despair or failure. I read that in the description and I I was like, absolutely. I was trying to tell your brother, like I totally, I was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Somebody that gets it. (laughs) Which is literally like my story. I mean, this is why this show exists because I I went through that. And one of the things that, and the speaking engagements that I've done and on this show that I talk about is, you know, I want to get, want us to get to a point where we don't nurse our wounds with success. Right. But you can't though. Like you really can't. I think that's part. So I, so black folks, I get it. Like when we talk about black excellence, which a lot of times just really feels like black exceptionalism to me in a sense, but it's this idea, like we will say, oh, I'm my ancestor's water's dream because I got a degree or I bought a house or whatever. But we we rarely talk about being our ancestor's water's dreams because we get the rest or I'm my ancestor's water's dreams because you know, I can honor these ancestral traditions or I'm healing, right? I'm not out here hustling and grinding my body up. So um, we we definitely think that success is going to do something for us. And don't get me wrong, because we are in a capitalist society. So I understand that. Like the idea that success will pay, success will pay your bills because um, you need money. Like I, I get it. You need resources. Um but that's why you have so many people who are out here. They look good on paper, like accolades and accomplishments, but they could be some of the most miserable people you ever met. I'm, I'm telling you, like when I worked, you know, as a lawyer in an entertainment business, it was the darkest period of my life. And it was because I was surrounded by so many unhappy people. I believe you know, all of the, the access and the VIP lists and the opportunities and people's Rolodex is crazy. And I, I've seen people sit across from me and shed actual tears because they're just in such a dark place because all of that stuff is superficial. Right. And they're not dealing, you know, with the with the internal, um, which is why I'm so committed to having these conversations <laughs> about um, really getting to what's real. 
and right. and what does that look like? And like you said, we we all want success. I sleep better at night knowing my bills are paid. So you know, it, right? Like right. that's what I'm saying. I'm yeah. trying to hold space for all of it because the reality is like we got bills and we got bills. Right. <laughs> like I totally. I mean, it's just that simple. So I, but I think it's like those honest conversations. And again, this is not stuff that you really. I, I mean, growing up, my people ain't had these conversations, mm-hmm. right? Like, and even having these conversations now, it's still kind of a next level type of thinking. Like, it's not, I'm very much situated between a lot of my peers and entrepreneurs who are absolutely like hustling, grinding, you know, you know, no days off. Like, I, I get it. I get it. So it is still very much not the normal perspective. Um and sometimes I think that's what I'm saying. Like when you're young, also like what a lot of times when we grow up, people like definitely encourage us to have these big dreams and all of that. And so we hit a certain age and then it's like, oh, you should pick something practical. You should do this. You should, you know, mm-hmm. come up with something that is like very money uh, generating and all of that. So I think even that message, that part of the message does come through to a lot of young people that, right, you're supposed to early on chase the money, right? You're not supposed to chase, you know, um, the soul or the life-giving thing. You're supposed to chase the money. You're supposed to chase the success. And that's why I like when you said you said across people who were in literal tears, it's interesting because a lot of times when people are in those environments and haven't seen that in some regards in certain spaces, it is like everybody is trying to see who's going to crack first from being unhappy. And also like, you know, these people only fool with you because you have access and stuff. But then this is who you're like in community with. So you're like, I don't really trust these people, but I have to spend all this time with these people. And so then it's just like a never ending cycle of like harm for real. Like <laughs> that, that is exactly it. And one of the things as hard as this year has been and with everything, the political climate that we're in, the 24 hour news cycle, the trauma porn that, as I call it, that we see all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, you know, the economic, all that stuff is really difficult, right? Obviously, and taking a psychological and emotional toll on all of us. But one of the things that I appreciate about 2020 um, is for me, I can only speak for me, but it, it really has shown a light on like where I was lacking in self-care mm-hmm. um, because I was just going, going, you know, on, as much as I preach on this show, right? About like sometimes being extraordinary is resting and all this other stuff. I was, there was so much on my plate that I was just on the move. And I, I realized probably midway through quarantine that like I, I didn't have anywhere to go, right? I was just home, you know, going to the grocery store and that's it. That there was some pain underneath the surface that I didn't even realize was there, you know, over things that had happened in the last couple of years and even recently, um, which if, if life was normal, I never would have even focused on that. Like I would have taken a day and been like, all right, on to the next thing. But like having to sit in that without like the brunches and the all day taping <laughs> and the, the you know, yeah, all the things that we do, like I just got to get out of this house and see yeah. my girls, you know, having to sit in that. Um, it really drove me back to therapy because I was like, OK, I need to save space to kind of talk through all this because I'm just here like with my thoughts. I'm working in this house. I'm living in this house. You know, everything is here. So one of the things that I'm you know excited about about this year, as difficult as it is, is I'm watching people that I know and that I care about also because they have the time, right? And the things, the layers, the spotlights being shown, they're like, I got to get help. Whether that's through a workshop, whether that's therapist, whether it's through podcasting, whether it's through reading, people are now open to having this space 
to really unpack what's going on, um, you know, underneath the surface. And let's be honest for like, and like you said, you know, much love to all the folks who absolutely have been like literally working like the whole time and frontline essential folks. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, my heart goes out to them. And I think this country absolutely should be a lot better to those um, people. For a lot of us also, like we have had real stillness, right? Like you said, there was like, we couldn't go to the brunches. We couldn't go to the day parties. We couldn't kind of just go and do all the other avoided things that we used to do. And so that stillness and that has definitely shined a light for a lot of people um, on kind of where some of the healing needs to take place. And if we're 100 percent honest, part of it, too, is just literally the sheer time. So like when you're out here um, moving on to a thousand and one things and a thousand and one things seem essential, you know, it's so easy to put the focus on everyone else but yourself. So one of the things we talk about in my Cape Center Pillows workshop is absolutely how much of our time and our self-care is tied up in other people's work. Um, and how are we making sure that our self-care is what we're supposed to do to prevent ourselves from being grinding up into ash? Not what we do after we've grinded ourselves up, right? It's a preventive type of measure, um, not once we burned ourselves out. So yeah, no, I think it's definitely been a groundswell moment just for folks who have just had the chance to have that stillness. Um, and then I think even for people who necessarily haven't had as much stillness, but people looking and like, you know what, this this society don't really care about me. It don't really like, oh my goodness. Like, I think even that's an eye opener and people trying to see like, well, how the hell do I get free from this thing? Because it's not invested in me. Right. So how, like, what do I need to do <laughs> to be my best self? Um, so a lot of that has created these opportunities, I think, for us to deeper, to more, um, engage deeply with, um, what we're feeling and all those unresolved things that we've been dragging from season to season. Mm-hmm. So before I definitely want, before you get out of here to talk about, uh, how the Black Mermaids brand has evolved mm-hmm. into merchandise and workshops, et cetera. But before we get there, tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Oh my goodness. I don't know. I just, I'm trying to think. Cause like, that's like the measure of parenthood. Like mm. <laughs> always having to do, you know, low key miracles for your children. Um, oh goodness. I'm trying to think of a specific instance. Oh no, I honestly can't really call one. I think about just, at one point I had um, my three children at one point went to three different schools. And <laughs> I just remember like having to like, drive them all to three different places, just coordinating the schedule. And that was daily. Um, just, you know, and then when people like when they had performances, just trying to be present, you know, and that type of way. My life looks radically different now, but um I think parenthood is like almost the true measure of, you know, being extraordinary um on ordinary days. And um yeah, I'm sorry I don't have like a very specific type of no. We always say parenthood. I've said it on this show very early when I was doing these episodes solo. One of the things I talked about is, um, you know, I would have friends who would say to me, I wish I could do as much as you did, but you know, I got these kids. And I'm like, you can never compare a childless, you know, single person to yourself if you have a family. Right. Yeah. And being a parent and rearing children in and of itself is activism, in my opinion, if you're rearing them the right way. Um, it's the hardest job on the planet. It is a Herculean effort to do it and to do it well. So on this show, we don't assign value to 
what's extraordinary, you know, Mm -hmm. this one isolated story versus having to parent. And let's talk about parenting black children, right? A whole other thing. So we don't, we don't minimize that as like, oh, that's not a great example. Like that is being extraordinary on an ordinary day. I mean, because like right now, you know, in virtual homeschooling, so my youngest, you know, he's, you know, being virtually, he's, he's, he's connecting with his, his classes and schooling virtually. And so, you know, I'm in, you know, I'm, so I'm the lunch lady, you know, security, um, you know, all those things. And so something that brings me so much joy is just what I cook because he's a vegan. So when I cook for him and he's like, oh, thank you, mom. It just, I don't know. It just warms my heart. Like mm-hmm. I just feel like so much love, like, oh, just the simple things in life, you know, um, so, yeah, absolutely. No, I get it. And I, I honor that. I don't want you to think that that's like a poor example of what it well, means. I just didn't have, not so much as like it was an honor, but just like I was like, I didn't have like a very specific like, yeah, because on this day, you know, on a Wednesday, I went and did X. Like, so mm-hmm. that's what I meant, like in terms of like not something specific. I understand. Um, so let's talk about how your brand has evolved. right? Uh-huh. So you had the poetry book, you had the children's book. But now Black Mermaids is its own thing that encompasses a lot of different elements. So break that down for me. So literally, I have just been doing my work, like doing, like getting these divine downloads and doing what feels like the right thing to do. And um, I don't know, I wish I could give you like some like, yeah, because I sat down and I was like, I'm gonna do this. And like, it literally did not evolve that way. It literally evolved by me saying, okay, what is the word that I'm getting from the universe that I'm supposed to put this work out into the world? And so that's what I've been responding. And I've been trying to bring forth all my best ideas, all the things that have been put on my heart to create. And so I put that stuff out into the world and kind of let it do its own thing. And I create the things that I would enjoy. So if one person or no people, you know, buy it, I'm like, oh, at least I got a new t-shirt, right? At least I got a new book because I really tried to center my desires and the work and then let it bring forth, like let it connect with whoever is also is meant to connect with. So it in in July 2017, um, I said to myself, so I had set up a website in, in November 2016. I was really surprised. I was like, because originally I was going to buy blackmermaid.com and it wasn't available. And I was like, oh, poor works, right? We'll do the plural. So I was like, hmm, ain't nobody snatched this up. Like, I just thought, I was like, that's just weird to me. Right. Like, why is blackmermaids.com not taken? So I took that as an early sign. So I had this website. Literally, all I had on the website was like a, a PayPal link and a picture of the book so you can buy it. And um, so later in in uh, in August, when Karima came out, I was like, oh, I should probably come out with like some type of real website. In July, I came up with like three or four additional t-shirt designs, three, three additional t-shirt designs. And so that, that brought me to four t-shirt designs. Um, I didn't even have it on the website initially. I literally just was telling people like, oh, inbox me for an invoice. That's what I was doing. It was like, okay, people want shirts. This is how I can get you shirts right now, you know? And, um, but you know, then I took a little bit of time to invest in those type of, you know, structures so that people could connect with the work in a more consistent and meaningful way. So I have just been adding and I try to encourage people to, if you have an idea, you know, people, you know, by the time you get all your ducks in a row, like something got hit, some, you know, like if you had to wait for everything to be perfect, you would never start. Um, and so perfectionism can also be a form of procrastination. So a lot of times you're like, oh, I just need to be perfect. Why? 
by the time you get it perfect, it's already outdated anyway. Exactly. Put it out into the world and let it do what it's going to do. Let it connect who, because even I've had what I thought were great ideas. And those were sometimes the ideas that did not connect with people, that did not pop. But I learned something else and maybe encountered something else. And it was like, oh, this is the thing. Um, and as a poet, poetry is the, like, poetry is my favorite thing to make and create. It's the thing that I also sell the least of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to be, I'm okay with that. I'm like, oh, it's fine, Julie. Like your words are your words. So whether you put them in the book, put them on a poster, right? Put them on a note card, put them on a t-shirt. The words will still reach people, even if it's not like, oh, it's in a book, right? They bought a book, but maybe they'll buy your words in other iterations. So the brand I think has been evolving as my interest. Um, I don't know. I think as I've gotten very clear about what it feels like I'm supposed to be doing in the season. So the workshops, you know, that's the latest, like, consistent thing. I've been doing workshops. I've been a facilitator for, like, years, on and off, in a variety of capacities. I used to also run a mental health organization. Um, I'm not a clinician, but... I'm also a healer. I'm also um, an energy worker. So I just kind of have these these other layers. And so I've been doing workshops for my community on and off for a while. And when pandemic hit, because I knew like I'm a social person too, I wanted to make sure I still was able to connect with people. And some of the mistakes that I've made in the past um, around wanting to be helpful took me kind of outside of my lane. And so I was like, Julia, like you already are doing something What's your lane? Like, do more work for folks in this space, but find out, you know, figure out what your lane is and stay in it. And so um, I was like, oh, I'm a writer. Like, words heal, right? Um, How can you connect with people around that in this pandemic? And so that's what I started doing. And then it kind of became like, oh, I have this, these other workshops. Um, another group had reached out to me to work with me. And I was like, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. And then I started doing the sequence after my experience with the um, the group that I, I started doing them with initially. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, I've just been answering the call, um, trying when folks ask me to create new products, if it's in alignment with where I'm going, I do try to like work with them. If it's not, I'm like, uh, I haven't gotten a clear direction. Um, folks that know me know that I don't move until I have a compelling enough reason to do so. Um, I feel like I have an abundance of things to already do. So just chasing the next thing, just to put my name in lights or just to say I did something that that doesn't excite me anymore. Absolutely. I definitely understand that. But what are the suite of workshops that you have currently available? So right now I have a four week rotation and the first one is called Whose Imagination Created Truth. And so in that workshop, we basically are looking at three pivotal time periods in a person's life and helping people to unpack like the messaging that they might have received that are, um, as Audre Lorde says, like who has their psychic imprint on you, right? Like what are the messages that you hear when you go to make a move? Like what do you hear? Like, is it encouraging? You know, did you get these harmful messages when you were younger that made you doubt your worth? And so now it's hard for you to produce things now in this season um did you get good messages about who you should be but they're not necessarily in alignment with who you want to be right so are you fighting against you were supposed to be a doctor you're supposed to be a lawyer you're supposed to be all these things and so you've been struggling with that because you know damn you really want to be a dancer right so we try to unpack all of that um one of my um, folks that went through the workshop, they said that after the workshop, they feel like they got their name back and, you know, they want us, you know, they can't wait to see what's coming for them in the future. So that's the first one. The second one, um, we do 
Capes into Pillows, which is basically exploring our complicated um, relationship to the grind and self-care. And so in that, we unpack like all the harmful discussions around hustling and grinding, especially um, as it relates to Black folks, like you know, all the things that we've been, you know, we've been taught, we got to work twice as hard to get half as much and all those harmful um, discussions. We try to folks in that space can get to the heart of what is troubling their ideas around rest and what is not allowing them to honor what their body is telling them the needs. Then uh, can we talk about grief is the third one. And that is literally a space to unpack our grief. Um, and to really examine why we are we have a hard time asking for help or why we're afraid to be vulnerable or why we think feeling is weakness. All of those discussions um, come up and can we talk about grief? And then the last one, which is, so all of them kind of low-key have some type of writing element, but I would not call them writing workshops. The last one is absolutely a writing workshop. It's called The Naming of Dreams. And in that, we basically name our dreams out loud through, um, through poetry. And so I'm teaching folks, I'm introducing them to three poetic forms. And then we basically, um, as one of my participants this past Sunday said, we basically name ourselves possible um, in that workshop. That is awesome. That is so, so good. Oh, man, just all of it together. It's and and even though these are, you know, four workshops, I see how they can all work together. Absolutely. So I think um, you can take one individually, but I think I just finished last Sunday. I finished the first four week rotation. Um, mm -hmm. Well, not the first, but one of the first four week rotations. And it was beautiful to kind of see how folks have been doing this work for four weeks and how they started to draw the connections right between week after week. Mm -hmm. So they absolutely are dope on their own, but together they're like absolutely magical. And what I love about everything that you're doing is just, you know, I consider this activism because, um, it it's it leads to and it fosters people being able to claim their humanity like and that is so important and it, it's always been important but i just think it's so crucial right now um to, to have a focus on that no i think it's important for black folks like we know there's a lot of work for us to do right in our communities and our lives and so there is absolutely this fight where we need to fight against these systems and we need to seek reparations and all of these things to make us whole in the material sense, right? And then there's this internal work, right? There's this internal work that helps us to see ourselves better, that helps us trust ourselves so that we in turn trust each other. There's this healing work that allows us to hold space. It's this healing work that says, damn, I've been I've been carrying this grief for 20 years, right? I've been carrying this grief for 20 years because I was the only Black girl in a school of mostly white people. And this is the harm that was done to me. Um, and so I've been, you know, I've been carrying this complicated pain around Black motherhood for all this time. So what does it look like for us to also unpack our baggage and our harm and our trauma around that? And so both are absolutely needed, right? Both are absolutely needed. Um, you really can't have one without the other. You really can't have one without the other. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, on a lighter note, let me just say, I'll tell you what I need, that uh, elder millennial t-shirt, okay? <laughs> because uh, I need it for me and a couple of my girlfriends because we talk about this all the time. Like, I'm on that cusp where, like, 
some of the studies don't even in- include us, right? Right. right. Others do. But I feel like I can't even relate to most millennials. We're just that weird. I'm in that weird sub-generation that yeah. kind of can reach back and understands the pre-digital age, but also, right. you know, kind of moved through technology. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, I need this. This is good. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I don't know, because sometimes people try to like, oh, you're like, it's like this. That's because you're not like a real millennial or whatever. And I'm like, no, I like the idea of being the original millennials. Like, I like the idea of being old enough to remember where we absolutely recorded tapes from the radio. Like, I'm old enough to remember where, like, you know, we didn't wear seatbelts and we drank out of a water hose. And, um, you know, all and, and listen, helmets, hell, we rode four to a bike. I shared, well, we shared a pair of skates. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, we let ourselves in. Like, it was no babysitter. Like, you know, I'm, like, I'm, I'm literally like, damn, like I used to like literally walk to the store like <laughs> when I was super young by myself with a note. Like, um, so we used to have this one store. My dad would send me to the store. It wasn't super far from like our unit, but like he would send me to the store with a note to buy Lucy's, like literally buy cigarettes with a note. Right. That is hysterical. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like, I'm like, we old enough to remember, like you said, the pre-digital age. And so I, I don't like to, I like to be nostalgic around it. I don't necessarily want to like, oh, one's better than the other. Because as we find a lot of things that we also are nostalgic over all these people that we deified, like later in the digital age, we find out everybody's business. And you're just like, I didn't need to know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my God. Does that mean I can never listen to that album again? Right? Like, so we... It, it's it's very interesting the complexity of being an elder millennial um, and absolutely being old enough to remember, you know, not really having computers or it was so cumbersome. Um, typewriters, like really yes. committing. I had a typewriter. Yeah. I had a typewriter. Then I upgraded to a word processor. Like, oh my god, the the word processor upgrade. My godmom had a word processor. There's a picture of me like sitting at the word processor. All I used to want to do. You asked me about careers because to me, I didn't. This is I think one of the things that I try to work with young people on is because I didn't realize it was so many like professional things you could do. So to me, people that worked in the office, like I assume everybody was getting money if you worked in the office. All I wanted to do was work in the office and be on a computer typing. Like I thought, you know, oh, everybody is winning. Um, and then later, you know, you find out like, oh no, that literally not necessarily. <laughs> does not mean that, but the the from the typewriter to the word processor upgrade. So you only have to start all the way over. Yes. Oh my goodness. Listen, just that part. That that's why I'm like, I understand too, maybe why some folks have a hard time seeing through seeing things through. Because I'm like, you will never know what it's like to have to start all the all way over. over. Like, it's it's, I haven't even thought about this in decades and saying it, like talking about it with you now. I'm like, what the hell? No wonder why I'm so resilient. So I used to have to start all the way over. That's a different ball game. Like, yes. you know, I'm, a, I'm appreciative of the advances that we've made, obviously. But yes. some of this whole microwave mentality thing, yes. I'm just like, y'all, these younger kids, I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, y'all don't know, y'all don't struggle. You don't. You don't have a struggle when the, the oven was the microwave, okay? Right. The oven was the microwave. Exactly. Like, I, you know, I talk to my friends now who, you know, have kids who may be tweens, and they're like, you know, should I let them cook? And I'm like, we were cooking when we were, like, six. Like, what are you talking about? I was babysitting, okay? Like, 
like four kids. Yes. Like now. <laughs> like, like, so it, it's funny because I definitely have that with my youngest son now. And I'm like, I'm in the process of trying to like teach him those things. Like mm-hmm. to show him like it's not that hard. And I think also my, yeah, because my, pa- my parents, my grandmother, like they absolutely, uh, my dad showed me how to cook. And my grandma, like what I used to go to her house, she let me kind of do whatever I wanted to do. So I absolutely was comfortable like on the stove and doing those things because I got, a, I got early practice. Um, but yeah, it's so weird in some ways. And I don't know, because some of the things we probably were doing probably well, were not okay. Right. <laughs> so maybe I think we have this shelter thing around like, I don't know. I don't want my nine-year-old babysit. Like I was definitely babysitting at nine. Definitely. <laughs> like, I'm like walking that back. Like I, you're not babysitting at nine. Like, um, or just walking off or going to the store. Or like I I taught myself how to catch the bus, all this stuff. Like, girl. Yeah, we got to find the balance. We do. Because like, yeah, some, some of that stuff, that the way we were reared, I think it, it it really primed us for life in a way that I just, I don't think these kids have. But yeah, some of it was just a bit too far. Bit I, too I, far. I will admit, for sure. A bit um, too far. But tell us, where can people find you online? Learn more about Black Mermaid's brand, follow you on social media, et cetera. Yeah, so my website is blackmermaids.com. Um, folks can follow me on social media. Um, I have two pages, well, two public pages. Oh, I hear you. Okay. <laughs> because every time I get a new idea, I start a new Instagram, mm-hmm. right? So I have like all these Instagram accounts um, that at some point may come into fruition. But uh, my Instagram is the Julia Mallory and then Black Mermaids brand. Um, so folks typically can see more workshop related and writing related stuff on my personal Instagram and then my business pages where I definitely showcase customers wearing shirts, new product launches, all of that. Well, I'm, de- I'm not kidding when I say I'm buying the t-shirt for okay. the Elder Millennials. Absolutely. I love the support. <laughs> well, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Likewise. Um, and I'm excited because so many people have been talking to me just needing support, trying to find a safe space. Um, So to those who are listening, especially those of you who text me and reach out and they're like, who should I talk to? What should I read? Listen, go to blackmermaids.com, follow Julia online, look into what she's doing. Sign up for all four if you can, if they aren't sold out. Listen, we also have, you know, folks folks have a financial need. You know, there is some scholarship money available or I call them healing chips. You know, the community, like, put some money up and was like, hey, you know, we support this work. We believe in what you're doing. Awesome. Um, to make it available and accessible to people. And I try to tell people too, like, you know, these workshops are not, they are definitely a therapeutic support, but obviously like they're not what we consider to be traditional therapy. But I have people who come to them who are absolutely in therapy and also doing the workshops, right? And so they can be absolutely complimentary or if therapy is not necessarily your style, um, there's no one way to get well. Right. We have to all find something that we will stick with. And so, you know, even the workshops, I think, have even introduced people to like, damn, I want to do more work. Let me let me call a therapist. Now. And that's what I was going to say, because yeah. so many of us are resistant to that that therapy thing. And I understand why. Right. It's, it's hard work. But this can be a stepping stone. Right. Absolutely. Start here. Open yourself up in this setting that may feel easier to digest and process. Um, and then maybe move on to the next thing, right? That may feel a little bit more intense. So I'm going to encourage our listeners to check out the work that you're doing. Of course, we always say, if you've enjoyed what you've heard on this podcast, like, 
share, subscribe, tell somebody about it. We are nothing without our listeners. So go ahead and support us, support Julia's brand as well. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.